Hello! Welcome to the Tweak a Little Harder edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am here with Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. She would like to be the next <laughs> CEO of Wells Fargo. Just I am also while. here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. Would you like to be the next CEO of Wells Fargo? Um, it's This is funny, but no, no. No. But you like to work. That's I your love whole to work. Stick. What I would not like to do is be have like Maxine Waters be like call me in every time she wants to like yell at somebody. So we are going to try and work out on this show who might conceivably want this job apart from Emily Peck because it looks like she's not going to get offered it. We are going to talk about the book business and Wither Barnes & Noble. Is there hope yet for that bookstore that you probably don't think of too fondly? We are going to start by talking about YouTube and what on earth they think they're doing in terms of content moderation. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment about Chinese pork, and all manner of amazingly insightful things about Warren Buffett and various other overrated rich people, to quote Emily Peck. All that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Emily, I wrote about YouTube this this week. What did I say? (laughs) It was very short and to the point because it's axios. It's smart brevity. (laughs) Yes, it was very smart (laughs) and quite um, quite brief. Yes. So you were talking about, let's back up. YouTube (laughs) is the subject of a lot of controversy right now, to say the least, for a couple of reasons. First was this thing with a journalist from Vox Media, Carlos Maza, who took to Twitter to complain that there was a man on YouTube was basically harassing him. His name was Steven Crowder. He has like 4 million followers and he put out a bunch of videos criticizing Maza in like, he was name calling him essentially, like slurs about him being gay. And Maza took to Twitter and he complained and complained. And YouTube really responded in sort of this like wishy-washy back and forth kind of way that sort of dug themselves into a hole. They said, we're standing by Steven Crowder, even though he said these slurs, that the slurs were hurtful, but they don't violate our policies. Then they said the guy couldn't monetize his YouTube channel back and forth. The bottom line is the the videos are still there. So that's one controversy. Then there's another controversy where 
The New York Times ran a piece by Kevin Roos, which looked at YouTube's algorithm, which basically once you start watching videos on YouTube, the company will show you more and more horrendous, extreme videos. So you might start, there are two stories actually, one dealing with child pornography and then Roos's piece. So the child pornography YouTube situation is basically you go to YouTube and you watch a video of, say, like a 20-year-old woman who's good-looking, and then the next video you see is an 18-year-old woman, and the women keep getting younger and become girls, and all of a sudden YouTube is a place where people can go to see child pornography because of the the way the algorithm essentially works, because they want to steer you to more extreme and extreme and extreme. Or at least videos which can be viewed that way, of no. like, you know, yes. kids running around without very Right, just innocent videos, essentially, but the way the algorithm's working, the viewer might not be so innocent, essentially. And then Roos's piece was more about political extremism, whereas you, you start watching a video maybe by someone from National Review, and then you wind up down a hole that leads you to essentially a Nazi, more or less. And he profiled this guy who just became obsessed with YouTube videos and watched them and really became radicalized through YouTube. So two things are controversial, the algorithms and YouTube's standards. Like, why didn't they take down the Maza thing? So Felix wrote about the standards piece, right? Right. So my my general theory here is that the problem that not just YouTube, but especially YouTube keeps on running into, is that they have some sort of clearly defined rules about what policies they have, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. So they have, for instance, incredibly well-defined nudity rules. And there are certain, like, body parts you can't show on YouTube, and you're not going to see those on YouTube. And it's like they can define that pretty simply, and, and that seems to work. But when it comes to, you know, obviously harmful videos like the ones that Stephen Crowder was putting out, they struggle to identify the policies that would be, or the rules that were being broken. Um, even though there was a pretty, I mean, a lot of people managed to point to certain rules and say, he broke those rules, but somehow, according to YouTube CEO, who went on stage at the Code Conference this week and tried to explain what happened, you know, they had to look at all of the videos in context, and somehow, after looking at all of the videos in context, they decided they didn't violate the policies. And that was a deeply, I mean, I think we can all agree, deeply unimpressive showing, partly because she kept on apologizing to the gay community for, you know, all of the harm that, you know, YouTube had caused without actually admitting that she'd done anything wrong at all. <laughs> and without ever indicating that she might have or should have done something different. And nothing seems to have changed. And my big bright idea was basically just like, you can't do, like, YouTube is too big to have one-size-fits-all rules for every single conceivable video that you will ever find on YouTube. And what you should have is much broader, fuzzier principles and just say, you know, like, for instance, if certain gay men are being targeted and are on the receiving end of a huge amount of abuse as a result of videos on YouTube, we should probably take those videos down. You know, simple things like that, which it's hard to, you know, turn into a bright rule. But YouTube seems and and this is true of Facebook as well and it seems to be true like even of Twitter that they seem to be very very reluctant to articulate actual principles for reasons that we can speculate about but are not entirely clear. Yeah, I mean I think 
when you're talking about things like visual images, like the it's very clear cut, you know, something a nipple is something not a nipple, like, you know, but once you start to get into speech, it does get a little bit dicier. But I do think you're right in that when you're dealing with something on this scale, you probably are going to need some type of like two pass system where you can have some type of algorithm that's going to flag things, that there are certain words or, or, or people flag them. But then you're going to need someone that brings in a little bit of discretion to figure out, you know, how is this being used? I mean, granted, you could even actually say the same thing for nudity because, you know, it is. No, the, I mean, remember when Facebook took down right, that, the image, yeah, the the image girl, of the yeah. Vietnamese mm-hmm. girl. Like, you absolutely do need discretion. And Susan, I can never pronounce her name, Washiki, came on stage and she was like, well, we couldn't do that. And she said this three or four times. She said, we couldn't take down these videos because then if we did that, we would have to take down millions of other videos. And we would have to take down, you know, comedy videos and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, you wouldn't. Like, why, why do you think that that would force you to take down millions of other videos? And the answer seems to be, I think, deeply rooted in the Silicon Valley engineering culture of everything needs to be super predictable and ones and zeros. And like, they don't understand this idea of discretion. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny when I, when I read your piece and I was like, I, I think partly because I very much understand because I feel like that is how my brain works. Like, I love rules. Like, I love rules. I love structure. And so I understand this desire to feel like, no, we want this very clear cut thing. So like, but the problem is that doesn't work when you're talking about now running what is essentially the public square, how so many people are getting access to information. You can no longer do the kind of things that worked when you were just building like an algorithm for one tiny thing. Yeah. And I think it really it's like YouTube and also Facebook and these other platforms, they really don't want to be like media outlets. But this is precisely what media outlets do. The New York Times, the Huffington Post, Axios, we all have principles and standards. And it's like there are Often there are some bright line rules, but there are also cases where you go to the standards editor and you say, I want to do X, Y, Z. And they say no or yes or let's talk about it. Like it's messy stuff. Words are messy. You know, I mean, I I, I remember having a wonderful conversation with The New York Times editor once about the F word. (laughs) <laughs> and whether and how it could be used. Right. And she had this little thing in the um, in T Magazine about the first lines of the biggest novels of the year. And I think it was Jonathan Franzen had, you know, the word fuck in the first line of his novel. And this took them like weeks to decide whether they could print this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. that's exactly the kind of situation where you think about it and you have rules and you have principles and you have standards and you you know, talk about it in an intelligent way. And somehow the thing which I'm struggling with here, you know, you're on stage in front of the world's media, all the top tech journalists in the world, and you're dealing with Vox Media, you know, a podcaster at Vox Media, and a YouTuber at Vox Media who has a very significant platform and has been the recipient of very significant abuse. And you seem to be weirdly determined to treat this specific high-profile case in exactly the same way as you would, like, a tiny video with, like, one complaint and three views. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in this case, Crowder has four million followers. You know, he said these, like, offensive things, and then it really mobilized his followers to then harass Mazza. So they were coming after him. They were texting him, he said, direct messages, Twitter replies, going after his family. It was was really serious. And, yeah, it deserves a different kind of look than maybe if Steven Crowder had, like, five followers and there was no harassment. That's a different situation. You need 
broadly a human to deal with that. Yeah, and I think this also, because I feel like I can see the other side where someone would probably say, well, but from a legal perspective, it's just going to be so much easier if we just have very clear sense of what we do and what we don't do. But I actually don't necessarily think that's and the greatest the argument. Is, and right. the fact <laughs> is that in the legal system, right. there are there's this three I went kind of went down this rabbit hole when I was writing this piece about how this works in legal systems. Now, you know, YouTube is not a legal system. It's a it's a dictatorship basically. Google gets to impose whatever rules it wants. But the fact is that even in legal systems which have lots of checks and balances, you have certain break rules, which you know, laws that you can't break. And then there are certain areas where you find principles and standards. And for instance, you know, sentencing guidelines are a really good example of like you know an example of where you want principles-based systems rather than rules-based systems. And when you try and impose rule-based systems on sentencing guidelines, like horrible things happen as a result. I mean, freedom of speech is principles-based. We have freedom of speech, exactly, but, but we there can't, are certain yell, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. You can't slander someone. Like, There's a lot of like reasonable man tests yeah. in, 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 or even just like the reasonable doubt test in criminal trials, you know, which ultimately wind up having to rest on human discretion. And it seems from what YouTube was saying on stage that they are really worried about just the scale of the number of humans they would need to employ and, you know, thinking humans with discretion who would have to make these decisions and be accountable for these decisions. And I think that on some level, there's like a positive and a negative reason why they're going down this like bright line rules based road. The, the positive reason is just like the more videos they have up, the more money they make. And the more they bring people down extremist rabbit holes, you know, the more time gets spent on the platform and the more ads those people view and the more money they make. And they have that profit motive. I don't think it's entirely a profit motive, though. I think it's also just, a, again, a very Silicon Valley aversion to hiring human beings. And they're like, if we insisted on a principles-based system, then we would need to hire a whole bunch of human beings to think, and we don't like doing that. Right, and they're not wrong that, yes, it's going to be much, much more complicated to actually have to hire humans, but, well, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you become an enormous <laughs> company. Like, yes, you now have responsibilities. I think the same thing with Facebook. It's the same thing with Twitter. And I'm not convinced that they can't find more algorithmic solutions to this, since, as the timepiece showed, you could be sent down the rabbit hole to more extremist views. Why not tweak your algorithm so that so they isn't claim, happening? They claim that they're tweaking the algorithm to make that harder, but no one's seen any evidence of this. Yeah, so tweak a little harder, guys. Exactly. I mean, yes. um, Mazza called Crowder YouTube's ideal creator because he's one of these down-at-the-bottom kind of guys that you just stick with who seems really compelling once you get there. And there's no reason that I can see that YouTube, which is filled with smart people, can't fix it so that people aren't sucked into these people's worlds. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Are we going to talk about books now? Or? Oh, let's talk sure. about books. Okay. About books. I have a story, which is a true story, which is on... It's about Margaret Thatcher. Sunday. <laughs> this is not about Margaret Thatcher. I, I um, needed to buy a birthday present for a friend. And I had an absolutely lovely time where 
I went up to McNally Jackson Books in um, downtown New York, and I bought a wonderful book about sort of like the unseen architecture of of New York, like the alleys and the trash cans and the, all the little bits of like micro architecture that no one looks at. And I bought another wonderful book about James Baldwin, and it had beautiful photographs in it. And I also bought, while I was at it, a wonderful cookbook. I can recommend How to Eat a Peach by Diana Henry. It's very so you, good. you did not go to Barnes & Noble. I did. Well, the point is I had a very, you know, happy, tactile experience. And I take all the books up to the book counter and I pay, like, full retail price for all of them. And I don't feel bad about it. And this is the secret of Daunt books in England, which started off as one bookstore in North London, a really beautiful bookstore. You've probably seen the tote bag somewhere. And then grew into a like mini chain of like five or six. And then eventually the founder, what's this something? James Dawn. James Dawn. Dawn. James Dawn eventually winds up taking over Waterstones, which is like this massive, it's like the Barnes and Noble of England, basically, and turns it around quite magnificently. Because he under, he he has this idea. If he understands why people like bookstores, and he understands that different people in different cities like different bookstores, and you want to be in touch with your local population, and when that works, you know people are still reading loads of books, and you can make money off them. And so now, his bosses at Elliot, the evil hedge fund, have now gone and bought Barnes and Noble, and going to try the same thing over here. And I was talking about this over dinner last night, and everyone's like, "Yeah, you can do it in with Waterstones, but." Good luck trying to do that with Barnes and Noble. I don't know. I, I read all about James Daunt. I went deep on James Daunt, and I'm convinced that if anyone can save Barnes and Noble, it's probably this British guy. I mean, he started his book chain when he was like 27 or 28 years old, allegedly because his wife said he couldn't be an investment banker, which is now kind of ironic because he's working for the Evil Hedge Fund. But um, he and he just seems really smart about bookstores. He seems to actually understand what people want. Like you said, when he went to Waterstones, they had very uniform rules about displays and things like that, and they sold displays display space to publishers who decided what books would go on what shelves yeah it's like it's like a supermarket where you a huge amount of supermarket profits come from like you know selling shelf space at the end of aisles to certain you know box and gamble or whatever and they did the same thing with books and and mm -hmm. don did away with that or rather he kept he was like hey publishers can you not tell me which books you want at the end of the aisle and let me pick the books which will sell the most and then we will both benefit and he Mm -hmm. kind of went along with it and it worked and it was like very controversial because they were making tens of millions of dollars selling that space and so he comes in to a failing chain and is like I'm going to get rid of this like kind of well, revenue stream. But. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think this is where like his investment banking skills came in mm-hmm. was that he didn't actually lose that revenue. Mm-hmm. He just persuaded the publishers to let him pick the books on a store by store basis mm-hmm. rather than like being forced to accept the books that they thought would it. do the best. Yeah, and they ended up having a much lower rate of returning books to publishers. It's normally it's like twenty mm-hmm. percent, and it was like four percent. Yeah, and the people. So he he got rid of people in the stores he laid off workers but the workers who were left were given much more autonomy and spent a lot less time like boxing up books to send back to publishers and instead you know actually like walking around doing work and he says in one of the profiles you know and they're happier being busier which uh, maybe which i kind I, of I, believe but I, everyone's yeah, happy but like, right. i think yeah. i think we have all at some point walked into a barnes and noble and seen some like dead-eyed person behind the cash <laughs> register and thought like this is not the bookstore of my dreams 
Right. No. <laughs> right. No. And and I think it's I mean, what's happened with books, I do think it's this like kind of in some sense just interesting example of like kind of creative destruction and how, you know, we always think of like the you've got mail and how it was, oh, it was the Barnes and Noble and Borders of the World that were killing the teeny tiny bookstores. And then Amazon came and they'll oh, now all of a sudden everybody's kind of looking, you know, with nostalgia at these stores. But what I think Amazon is actually in a way done is it's kind of forcing these stores to be better. Yeah. Which is a, not a bad thing. It's sort of like the whole book industry has sort of come to a new equilibrium and has adjusted to the threat that Amazon posed. While at the same time, there was that piece in the FT which pointed out that Amazon is kind of like backed off a little bit in its war. Like it stopped lowering the price on ebooks so much because I think because of a lawsuit, but also because it doesn't want the sales of print books to go away. So the ebook threat has kind of like flattened out. People, people are reading fewer ebooks yeah. and it's partly, not entirely, but it's partly because they're more expensive. And, yeah. they, and they read more when they were right. a lot cheaper than the books and now they're often more expensive than the hardcovers. Right. Right. And so if it's more expensive to buy the ebook than the hardcover, people prefer the hardcover and they'll buy the hardcover. And James Dawn actually made a great point in one article or another basically saying like the price of a book if you're going to read like a 400 page book and mm-hmm. it's going to take you like a month to read it, the price of the book is kind of the least important part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it's like, you know, the difference between I, I got this for 20 bucks or 25 bucks. You, you, this is, you know, it's not that people aren't price sensitive, but, you know, for someone who's immersing themselves in that kind of a world for that long, it's worth it at almost any price. And right. It's interesting to think about how the book industry almost seems to have been more resilient to digital threat than music or or media in general. And well, certainly the book selling industry, this is the thing, like you don't see record stores anymore. They just don't right, exist. It's gone. Whereas like independent bookstores have been growing for quite a few years now. That it's a whole it's a growing and vibrant section. And the, but the, as I say, I think the big open question is can you do that to this Medicaid. green and beige chain of big boxes in strip malls? Right, because but the book industry is still not doing fantastically. You mean the retailers <laughs> or the publishers? The publishers, and and right. also well, this doesn't affect the publishers. Well, and also if you're in in retailers to a certain extent, because where you're really seeing growth in publishing is in audiobooks. Yeah. I mean that that's where you're really really seeing growth in terms of actual print books. It's, it's kind of stagnated, and when you're talking about Barnes and Noble, it is just so much bigger than Waterstone. So it whether the same strategy is going to work is a really big question. And it is definitely going to involve scaling back a lot because they just clearly massively overbuilt. And, you know, I mean, I think in the Midwest where you have these just like enormous Barnes and Nobles and it always seems like 90 percent of the books there no one has ever looked at. Right. And I think that's and Daunt did this as well. He got rid of all the textbooks and the technical Mm -hmm. books and stuff. And when Barnes and Noble was created in the pre-Amazon era, there was this amazing feeling of like, here's this book superstore where I can get anything I desire. And like whatever book I want is going to be in here somewhere. And I remember when I first moved to New York, there was this huge, um, what was that Canadian book chain? Chapters, was it? Borders? Borders? No, no, no borders. Anyway, it was in the World Trade Center. It was absolutely enormous. And like, honestly, I never once went into that bookstore and didn't find what I was looking for. They had everything. And it was kind of amazing. Like Amazon. I remember <laughs> the pre-Amazon era. And then I remember going to Amazon, literally to this day, in my bookmarks on my web browser, which has somehow followed me around for 20 years, 
the Amazon bookmark says Amazon.com Books, Earth's biggest bookstore. Because <laughs> that was the name of it. Yeah, I mean, it obviated and, and the need for the big bookstore. Exactly. Right. And so now, you know, you have to be much more personalized and curated. And, and please just change that logo and color scheme. And, yeah, it is, you know. it is very like, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. And I, one of the examples that I think is interesting is actually outside of books, which is Best Buy. Because Best Buy has been the company that has really done a very good job of reinventing itself to create the type of retail experience that will actually be profitable. Best Buy is delightful. I I don't really, I haven't been there in a long time and we went recently with my kids and I had the best time. The the layout is really great. You can touch a lot of stuff. It's very tactile. Wherever you go in the store, someone wants to help you. This is not an ad for Best Buy. But I was just really (laughs) shocked by how good the experience was. And I think that's right. As online retail sort of starts taking over the brick and mortar guys they really have to be you have to give people this like amazing bespoke experience in order to get them to go but to it the is store. it's just like turn around and see something which you know is delightful whether it's an apple store or a best mm-hmm. buy or a mm-hmm. bookstore the idea of a shop as being a place you go for an experience and a pleasant experience as i say like i don't think anyone had a pleasant experience at barnes and noble in any time in the past 20 years but yeah. like it can, Although it can so possibly that be, I just I just worry about the fact that so many of them are in sort of dying shopping malls. Like if the area of retail which is hurting the most is the is the big box strip mall type part of retail, like that's exactly where Barnes and Noble is. It's true, but that's also where Best Buy is. I mean, there are six hundred and twenty seven Barnes and Nobles. This guy is probably going to have to shutter a bunch, right? That's about kind of the bottom line. Like he'll make a lot of them. I mean, better, a bunch of them have been. Right. Barnes Noble has been a public, com- a shrinking public company yes. for a long time. So it's not like they haven't shut down a bunch of stores already. Mm-hmm. But he's probably shut down more and make some better. And we'll have to check in. Yeah. And, and I think you know, I do think that like the you know the big flagship on Union Square in in New York, for instance, is like has every potential to be an absolutely amazing, beautiful, like world class bookstore. Uh, you know. Some of the other ones. Who knows? Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Emily, do you want to be the CEO of Wells Fargo? I'd do it. Sure. <laughs> I think you're the only I think you're the only person it's who like wants that job. It's like an $18 million a year job. I'll do it for 6 months and I'm fine. I'll do it for 3 months until Elizabeth Warren fires me. <laughs> Uh, and I'll keep the podcast. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you'll just do it like four days a week, right? Yeah. yeah. How hard could it be? How hard, how hard could it be? I mean, they haven't had a CEO for months. Apparently, it's very hard. Anna, how hard, how hard is it to be the CEO of Wells Fargo? It's a, I think it's going to be a little tough. A little tough. Yeah. Yeah. No. So apparently, like, uh, it, the most well-paid job that absolutely nobody wants is to be the CEO of Wells Fargo. So their former CEO who had stepped in kind of after the crisis, but had been an insider, Tim Sloan, stepped down after there was a lot of controversy about him being in. And since then, they've just basically had their general counsel kind of filling in. 
in the fourth largest financial institution in the United States. And now... And we remember what this is like, by the way, because when Vikram Pandit stepped down as the CEO of Citigroup, the general counsel stepped in, Chuck Prince, and that was probably the single most disastrous CEO of any major (laughs) bank that you can remember. I mean, he was just... I mean, like, literally no one thinks that... and, And isn't... Brian Moynihan, wasn't he GC at some point? I think so. Yeah, at Bank of America. There seem like, especially since the crisis, there does seem to be this trend of lawyers running banks. And I, I'm not convinced this is actually a good idea. Well, no, and, and no one wants this to continue at Wells Fargo. It's just that they're having a very hard time convincing anyone to take this job. And I don't think it's overly surprising why. I think some people will look at it and they'll say, oh, you know, it's a poison chalice. Nobody wants to step in there. But I think it's less that. And it's more the fact that this is the most heavily regulated American bank currently. And why would anyone want to step into that job? Anyone who has the qualifications, so could have a lot of other jobs, why would they want to step into a job where from day one, they are going to be a political punching bag? They're going to have their hands tied in eight million ways. And yeah. And, and and my favorite bit is that there is a regulatory cap on growth. Yes. They're not mm-hmm. allowed to get any bigger. So the one thing that all CEOs want to do, apparently it's like hardwired into public company CEOs, is they all want to grow. You know, we've had lots of fights with Anna Shemansky on this show in the past where she's like, well, if you're a public company, you need growth. And how are you going to get the growth? But like at Wells Fargo, you're literally not allowed to grow. So you need to find um, right. well, something that, else to do. And granted, that cap will almost certainly at some point, obviously, go away. But right now, yeah, I mean, this is a difficult time for Wells Fargo. Now, they're not doing horribly by any stretch of the imagination, but they used to have kind of industry leading growth and they don't. And for many obvious reasons. <laughs> but I feel like this is a challenge and someone should rise to the challenge because it's still – Wells need, Fargo is still doing not badly. I read one in three of every household does business with Wells Fargo. That's an enormous business no. that they yeah, have. It's, it's, like it's, it's if you Wachovia. have the nerve – they bought Wachovia during the crisis. They, mm-hmm. they. It's, I think it's. I it's mean, the and you're fourth right. largest bank in the country. In terms of rising to the challenge, I mean, remember when the current CEO of Uber was the CEO of Expedia, and he was doing a great job, and he was making loads of money, and he was a happy bunny. And then one day he's like, "My job isn't hard enough. I want a much harder job, so I'm going to go run Uber instead." And he recently fired his COO because he said, like, actually, I want to be even more hands-on and I want to make my job even harder still. I don't want to be just be this, like, public-facing face of Uber. I'm going to get my hands dirty and, like, run things. And I'm like, you could have such an easier life. Why <laughs> would you bring all of this pain on yourself? But that's what he wants. And there are people like that. And there's got to be someone like that in the banking. I feel like weirdly, actually, that Mike Corbett, who's the CEO of Citigroup, is a little bit like that. Like he became the CEO of Citigroup after running the bad bank. You know, they, they kind of split City into a good bank and a bad bank. And then he ran the bad bank very well. It was a super tough job. But he sold off all of the toxic assets and made more money off them than people thought he would. And And then he's now running City, which is, you know, Chuck Prince's horrible legacy. And he's 
again, someone who like takes what looks on its face like a pretty bad job and is doing a reasonably good job at it. The problem with Wells Fargo is toxic culture, right? So you need to, someone to come in and, and the toxic culture is evidenced by its aid is great scandal where they were signing customers up for accounts and, you know, not telling the customers and then they get a bad credit report. Details, like, details. Also this thing where you would take out an auto loan with them and they would like give you this extra insurance that you have to pay for and didn't agree to it or know about it, leading some to default on their loans. I mean, this is a, a really toxic bank doing really bad stuff to consumers, but it's not like and it's a, a bad and, and business. Actually, there was Do you know what I mean? The like, amount you of, fix the culture. The amount of consumer harm was relatively small. There was a lot of, you know, accounts which were opened and consumers didn't even know about it and didn't cost them anything. There was a, there was some consumer harm, but, like, we can all point to banks where there was more consumer right. harm. The big harm, weirdly, was to the employees who were all like under this incredibly high stress, yeah. like intense mm-hmm. sales culture. They were also like, like every single customer needs to have nine different products from right. Wells Fargo and they would all get fired or burn out because they couldn't meet their sales quotas. Right. And you're like, you don't want bank employees to be like, you know, hard sales people, you know? Right. And when you say it's just about changing the culture, I mean, yes, it is. And that's why Dara's job is so hard. And that's why the Wells Fargo job is so hard, because this is a culture with tens of thousands of employees, which has been baked in for however many years. And it's actually really hard to change the culture. It and it's is, very yeah. hard to think of an example of a CEO who managed to come in and then successfully did change the culture. Yeah, you're going to have to... Because you would need to. <laughs> but Waterstones is actually a good example. Right. Yeah. Although you would need to change incentive structures and there's no real example of how they're going to do that. They've also not been great about coming forward with an actual corporate governance or risk management changes. Like they keep saying they're going to, but what they're doing has not been great. I think you're right that at some point someone is going to step forward and I, say, no, I, it's it's going to be Alan Parker. It's going to it's going to be this GC guy yeah, who stepped in. It's just going to take it permanently. Yeah, Apparently, he's been making noises in the press about how actually he could kind of get used to this. Yeah, there was a piece in Bloomberg, I think, yesterday or maybe even this morning about that. He wants yeah. a job, and people are like, Fine, whatever. He hasn't <laughs> been there that long because it's only he's only been there for two years. I think he came. He was at like Bath. White and Case, one, one, one of those, those one of those big firms. law firms. Yeah. I just want to end this by asking, what is the best piece of CEO succession planning that you can think of? I think one of the most important jobs of any CEO, and certainly if you ask any like board chair about this, it would say like the number one thing that you really need to do as a CEO is like run this company for the permanent future and make sure that you know your succession planning is all lined up and you know what's going to happen if you fall under a bus tomorrow. And it seems that it's unbelievable how many CEOs are just truly dreadful at this. Obviously, Wells Fargo had no succession planning, had no idea what they were doing. Whereas, for instance, you know, if Jamie Dimon fell under a bus tomorrow, you know that there would be a seamless transition and everyone would know what would happen. Goldman Sachs succession planning was fine. You know, it seems to be that the reasonably well-run banks all have reasonably smooth succession planning. And then places like Wells Fargo, one of the great indicators of how kind of messed up they are is the fact that they don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It is just striking. I mean, Jamie Dimon even said that. And it is. it is. I mean, the fact that you, you are this enormous financial institution and you have no plan of what happens next. I mean, Regulators have to force banks to be much more explicit about their succession planning. It doesn't need to be public. But 
the regulators should know. Yeah, and the fact that they didn't and were and like, what's their taken board by doing? surprise yeah, and it's... what the board is doing is dreadful. And you want – but anyway, my example, I think – I've been thinking about this for a while in terms of like who really did it right. And like, I think if you want to just judge a CEO on only that one criterion I, of what – who – which CEO guess what you're gonna picked say. the best successor, what, what do you think I'm going to say? Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs didn't do a bad job. It's true. Like, Steve Jobs to Tim Cook was a good piece of succession planning. I was actually going to say Eisner to Iger. Oh, yeah. At that's Disney. Good uh-huh. Worked pretty smoothly and pretty well. I think the fact that we didn't think of it actually indicates how smooth it was. Yeah. yeah. I forget sometimes who is who. Yeah. Actually. Can I say one side note about Wells Fargo? You can. Berkshire Hathaway owns like a good chunk of Wells Fargo. So Warren Buffett's out there always saying things about them. And everything he's, the little things I've read that he said about them really makes me think again about Warren Buffett. I just feel like he's one of these very overrated rich people. Like right before Sloan, you know, resigned because everyone wanted him to go. Warren was out there saying like really nice things about him and how great he was. Before, like right around the time of the Eight is Great scandal, he called Wells Fargo management brilliant and outstanding and I think we can all agree based on just this conversation that that is inaccurate <laughs> so I, I don't know I just like to prod at Warren Buffett's legend a little bit and not to mention the whole Kraft Heinz fiasco yeah not yeah. to mention the whole thank you well, it I is, just, it's just it's a subject kind of, for another day yeah it I is just come back kind of it. funny because Buffett's whole thing is supposed to be this like kind of like his strategy is just very 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 high quality companies at reasonable prices Wrong. which and yeah it, exactly what you're saying like a part of that is supposed to be Excellent management. Right, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't know it when he sees it because he did not Granted, see it. His whole career, though, I'm still going to say still on Team Buffett, but <laughs> I'll give you this one. Thank you. Okay, let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? My number is 60%. This is from Mary Meeker's presentation. You know, the one she does every year. It's like a bajillion slides on the tech industry. And 60% of the 25 most highly valued public tech companies were founded by first or second generation immigrants. Oh. And I thought that was a good reminder of how crucial and important immigrants are to the economic health of our country and innovation. Agreed. My number is 1,215,000. So that is the winning bid for everything about arithmetic, geometry, and proportions. A treatise written in 1494 that has been called the First Folio of Finance. Now, why has it been called the First Folio of Finance, you may ask? Well... (laughs) (laughs) It's because it was really the first book to set down the principles of double entry bookkeeping, which is one of the most significant developments in early commerce. And is, is, is this a one-off single book or is this like, I mean, the first folio of Shakespeare, there's, <laughs> there's hundreds of them. So in terms of this, I think there's like about 160 copies of this okay. available in the world. So but... the market cap of this book is like $200 million. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which is still lower than, you know, Harry Potter. <laughs> this is true. Okay, my number is $39.51, which as of 11.09 a.m. on Friday is the share price of Chewy, <laughs> the beloved pet retailer. It's the Pets.com of 2019. That's, that's what I was thinking. Like, how is this, how is this happening again? <laughs> It was, it it was, it went, they said they were going to go public at this ridiculous $7 billion valuation of between $17 and $19 per share. They now, like, I'm just back of the envelope here. They probably, it looks like they're worth $15 billion on the open market right now. 
They're the same as Pets.com, right? They just sell pet stuff. They sell pet stuff. But Very high they, end. If they, they, well, they, no, they, well, they, they, do, the, they do have high end. No, they have t- high end, but they also have low end pet right. stuff. But they will sell you whatever end of pet stuff you want. They have never once made money, but they were bought for $3.5 billion by PetSmart in 2017. And then PetSmart found itself with $8 billion of debt and they desperately needed to raise some cash. So now they're spinning off Chewy or like selling a small chunk of Chewy while still controlling it. And Chewy is now worth $15 billion, which is clearly and unambiguously more than PetSmart, which owns it, which is kind of amazing. It's a really bad sign. Yeah. I just remember we talked about that in like 2017 when that originally happened. And I just remember because I just remember they had some like ridiculous things they sold on their website. Because I remember it was like this like all lamb dog food that cost more than like an actual lamb. This is all I remember about you. (laughs) Well, people like to spend money on their pets. So that's okay. The one thing I will say, because I looked this up, was Pets.com was, of course, famously the most bubblicious, crazy stock of the dot-com bubble, and everyone couldn't believe how like overvalued it was, and it went to zero very quickly. Chewy is worth $15 billion. Do you know what the maximum crazy bubble valuation of Pets.com was when it was at the absolute top tick? $300 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's like one year's losses for, for Chewy. Are you going to put that in your email? You should put this in your email. Maybe oh. I'll put this... <laughs> I, I've written about I've written about <laughs> Chewy twice in my email, so I think I I kind of need to like just like close the circle on this one. I am. I'm going to write about. I, I have a, a working headline which is unicorns are real. Because <laughs> like it's not just the crazy private company valuations; it's now the yeah. crazy public company valuations. Not, yeah, we'll see how that goes. We'll cover it. We'll bring you the news about that here on Slate Money. Okay, so I think that's it. <laughs> Many thanks for listening to Slate Money. Thanks for subscribing and telling all of your friends to subscribe thanks for sending in your questions which we super appreciate we have a whole long list of questions now for us to answer on the q a episode but you can definitely Definitely send send more more. definitely send more if you have questions you want us to answer just send them to slatemoney at slate.com thanks to jessamine molly for producing because she's amazing and we will talk to you next week on slate money Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.